Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're here to continue our conversation from our Binge the Bible series. I'm joined by Bill Mayer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're excited to be with you. We did not have a Sunday sermon this week because it was the fifth Sunday of April, and we had a little play day, fifth Sunday fun day. Had uh, five baptisms, making 27 for the month of April, and a bunch more scheduled for May. So it's awesome to see how the Lord is moving in our community, and people are going public with their sometimes long-held faith. Those of historic faith had been baptized in infant baptism, uh, as now being baptized as adults, and uh, people freshly putting their faith in Jesus. So awesome stuff all the way around. We are presently reading through the Old Testament book of Jeremiah in our Reading the Bible in Six Months. And uh, this coming Sunday, May 7th, we'll be talking from Isaiah. And so um, I wanted to take a little bit of time to respond to some conversations that I've had about people's experience in reading the Bible in six months, and then to get to a couple specific questions uh, that were emailed in. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, the main thing that I want to start with has been, I've had several conversations with people who are reading the Bible in six months and they are kind of persevering through the Old Testament and not enjoying it. And so that makes me a little sad because uh, I'm, I'm reading it now for the second time in, in a six month interval and I'm, I'm enjoying it more than I did last time and I can't wait to actually read it again. I think I'm going to slow down my pace because I want to be able to sit in it a little longer and meditate on it without having to move forward. Um, but I'm absolutely loving every bit of it. And so, um, but I, I recognize that there are those who are not having the same experience. And so I want to talk a little bit about a negative sentiment about the Old Testament. Uh, I think the most common uh, kind of um, responses that I've been getting that are causing people to not enjoy it is the level of human violence um, and even God ordaining uh, the destruction of people groups and even judgment against his own people through invasions and war and the, the prophecy of s human suffering. And so our, our, if we're not acquainted with the Old Testament and if we're not acquainted with human history, then we kind of come to a 21st, 20th, 21st century perspective on a kind of post-Christ, not post-Christian, but post-Christ world that is characterized by increasing levels of peace and prosperity and then we look back into the ancient world with an expectation that that's normal when it actually isn't in the spectrum of human history. And then we also have these categories about God that are formed by um, the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And so we think that that's all there is to God. And so with that, we end up with a perception that the, the God of the Old Testament, as some people like to refer to him, um, being somehow different than God revealed to us in Christ and a dichotomy, a false dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I think that pervades a lot of the underlying presuppositions of people reading the Old Testament, maybe for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, or maybe you've never read it uh, in this fashion of going through it kind of in order. And so you're kind of shocked by the anger of God. So we're in Jeremiah right now, and Jeremiah is charged to prophesy to the kingdoms of Israel and Judah that God is angry and they've done wrong and they continue to harden their hearts and not respond. 
And so there's just uh, page after page after page of prophesied calamity and you, that, you, that can be a real struggle. And so there's a despairing tone to Jeremiah. Um, the, the Old Testament also can just be distant from our experience. And so there's a lot of analogy and word pictures and stuff that's going on that would have had immediate contextual meaning and would have served as a great um, illustrative function for ancient Near Eastern readers and hearers. But for us, we're going, well, what does that even mean, right? So, um, you know, in, in one of the, the features of Jeremiah that's already emerging for me is how frequently God charges Jeremiah to go do a thing he doesn't understand. And then after he does that thing over a period of time passing, then God shows him the meaning behind the thing that he did and then uses that as a way to communicate a message to God's people. So, for instance, um, you know, he tells him, go buy a new pair of underwear and I want you to wear that underwear until it needs to be washed. And then instead of washing it, I want you to stick it in a rock and I want you to leave it there for weeks. And then I want you to go back and get it. Now, tell me, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> you're like, is this in there? Yeah, that's in there. If you haven't got there, uh, you'll find it. Um, what in the world's going on? There's a picture here of worthlessness. And God is like allowing Jeremiah to have this like object lesson with this nasty, uh, uh, unwashed, rotten set of undies to be able to show like this is what my people is to me and they need to be cleansed. They need to be cleaned. And they instead of being cleaned when they could have been, now they're ruined. And so there's this picture. And so this happens again and again. He goes to a potter and look at this, this lump of clay and something happened to this lump of clay and now the potter's having to repurpose it. And he's going, look, I had good purposes and good plans for you and you, you're unwilling. And now because of your unwillingness, I'm turning you into something that is of dishonorable use instead of honorable use. And so these, these um, illustrations and object lessons pervade through Jeremiah, but they're all bad and they're all highlighting the hardening of Israel's heart against God and showing the anger and the heartbreak that God is experiencing because of the lack of faithfulness of his people. So you have all these stories that are playing out and names. And of course, now that we're in the prophets and there's references to during the reign of this king, the son of this king. So we went through all, all the, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And so we got this kind of overarching uh, vision of the history of Israel by its kings and then the northern and southern kingdoms. Well, now we're going backwards uh, in time through the lens of the prophets and their pro prophetic career that spanned multiple kings and were different addresses to the northern and southern tribes at different times with overlap between them. And it's not really clear, you know, where was Jeremiah and where was Isaiah and when do they overlap and who was older and uh, to who was what said. And so there's a lot of those things where because you don't have um, working knowledge of who all those people were and what all those times were, it can just be confusing. And so we end up reading past sections that set up for us the setting that helped to make that clear, but because we don't know the setting, it becomes confusing. And so it's easy for a new reader to just go, you know what, this is weird and this is hard and it doesn't make sense to me. And it's really surprising to me the things that God says and the things God says, says he's gonna do and then the things he does do. And it's really dark. And so I'm just gonna avoid it. And so I've had a number of people telling me, you know what, I don't want to read the Old Testament again, or I'm going to finish it, and then I'm not going to go back to it. And so I want to just challenge you. And I'm guessing if some people are telling me this, that there's plenty of people who are not telling me this, but having this experience. And so if that's you, I want to just kind of like back up for just a minute and to say a few things just factually about the scriptures 
and to give you some hope for why you can experience the Old Testament in the way that I'm experiencing the Old Testament, and that is to discover a revelation of the nature and character of God, the miracle that is uh, regeneration, the the commitment that God has had to his own purposes, the fulfillment of his faithful love, and, and then to be able to see these dark periods of time as creating a contrast by which the brightness of Christ becomes more visible. And so this has been my experience, and I want to just talk to you about this for just a minute. And I, w- I want to encourage you, if you, one thing that got me to love the Old Testament, because like, you know, who wants to just get saved and then read Leviticus? It's not that fun. But the more you questions that you generate from reading the New Testament, the more you require a background of the Old Testament right. to help you answer those questions and to set it up. Like all throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament, God is like, you know, foreshadowing Jesus, foreshadowing Jesus. And then, you know, here's the rules. Jesus follows the rules. Why did he do that thing? Well, if you read in the Old Testament, you would understand the Levitical law and why Jesus is like, the the lamb that was slain like did he follow the rules and like even like the uh, the parallels between the sacrificial lamb and how Jesus died and all these other things all yep. make sense and God had prophesied long ago through Old Testament and then some of those things really got me into loving the Old Testament because I'm like Lord what are you revealing and how are you setting it up for Jesus to be on the scene and, yes. and that's like that's what like got me really you know hyped up about reading the Old Testament and really wanting to sit with it and understand it yes yeah that's really good. And it brings me to actually a bit of practical advice I was going to save to the end, but I'll say it now. So I said this to a friend this week who was expressing this to me in some degree. And I was saying, well, listen, if the Old Testament's hard for you to read straight through, do yourself this favor. Get a study Bible. And as you read the New Testament, anytime there's a reference to the Old Testament, go back and read that reference. And maybe read the, the chapter preceding the chapter after or the paragraph preceding the paragraph after for context. And what you'll start to see is that you can't really understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And one of the problems that we have in America is that we are, we are under the unfortunate influence of a theological construct called dispensationalism that has a focus not on the person of Jesus, but on the nation of Israel. And the, this happened, and it happened in America be, during the post-World War II Zionist movement and the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. And because of that happened, that specific kind of geo-ethnic movement uh, sparked what's in all of our hearts, and that is a desire for the return of Christ, that that would be somehow like the indicator, the first indicator that God was coming back. And so because of that uh, hope among Christians and because of this um, expectation among Jews, that was a big deal. And so a lot of American theologians went back to the scriptures and to influencers from you know, 30, 40 years before that moment who were pre- predicting that that was going to happen and, and then with, you know, with no evidence in scripture that it would happen, but predicting that that would happen and that a third temple would be built and that, that then Jesus would come back and he would rule from, from, um, from Israel and that, that we'd have this millennial kingdom that Revelation talks about. But in order for that to happen, God had to fulfill his promises to Israel. And in order for that to happen, we had to remove the Christians. And this is where the rapture theology came from. And so this dispensationalism um, does us a bit of a disservice because it has an expectation that every um, prophecy in the Old Testament that names Israel as its object has to find its fulfillment in geo-ethnic Israel. 
But that's not actually the way that the scripture reads. And when you read the New Testament and its use of an understanding and application of the Old Testament, what you find is that the New Testament authors understood all of those prophecies to have been fulfilled in Christ, who was God's true Israel. And now those who are joined with him by faith actually are the Israel of God. And Paul makes this really explicit in Romans and in Galatians. It is not about your ethnicity, your genealogy, or your law-keeping that brings you into a covenant relationship with God. It's faith, repentance and faith in Jesus that binds you into the covenant that God has both made and fulfilled. And so this this requires a covenantal reading of the whole Bible, not a dispensational reading of the whole Bible. Now, I know some of you are tried and true dispensationalists, and you're already pushing back because you've been trained to understand that I am, I've fallen into the lie of replacement theology. But the, the, the issue here is if you read the, the coming of Christ and the Christian church as a plan B, that God has in, in time responded to Israel's hardness of heart and is now doing this thing, and he's going to now pull his plan B people off the planet so he can go back to finish plan A, you're not going to read the Bible accurately. But there's a lot of people that do. Yeah, and I would say, I would say just like if you think about the Old Testament, there's so much foreshadowing in there. I think he was foreshadowing the church the whole time. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, here comes Jesus, but like, let's let's talk about it in sacrifice form. Let's talk about it this way: foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. And like yep. everything in the Old Testament's a shadow of what the real truth and God's plan A always was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And part of the way that I teach the Bible and that I read the Bible, and I believe there's a there's a long, faithful tradition of reading the scriptures this way. It's not innovative. It's not something that I thought of. Um, but there's a, there's a Christocentric reading of the whole Bible. Um, so if, you, if you're looking for um, more accessible ways to understand this, let me recommend uh, Bible Project. They, they do uh, animated videos to help you understand every book of the Bible. And I'd say 90% of what they present I would agree with. There's a, a number of different um, caveats, which we can talk about at some point. Um, not important ones, but ones where I would disagree. But for the most part, they're reading the scriptures at a, as a unified story that leads to Jesus. But there's also like, the, the reality is, is that Christ was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Like before God said, let there be light, the, the heart of God was expressed outside of time in Christ. And everything was formulated by Christ through creation. And then redemption in Christ was the plan all along. And so if you're ever reading the Bible in any way that makes Christ an afterthought or a step, and there's even some versions of covenantal theology in some Presbyterian churches that I've looked at where they they show, they, instead of having the dispensations, uh, one of which is the church and one of which is Israel, that leads you to this need for this uh, end times rapture and this um, post-rapture movement among Israel and this specific millennial reign of Christ on the earth and the great final judgment, all these parts, and there's all these charts and maps that you have to do backbends with the scriptures to make sense of. Um, but, but there's also like a covenantal structure that kind of does the same thing where you have like an Adamic covenant and then you have a Noahic covenant and then you have an Abrahamic covenant and a Davidic covenant. And these covenants somehow are like, um, they're distinct, interrelated but distinct and so you're operating under each of these different covenants. And so a lot of the people who believe that will go to a section of scripture and just be like, oh, that was a different covenant. This is different. So now we're under this covenant. Well, that's, that becomes arbitrary. 
So I'm not saying that that's what we should do when I use the term covenantal. What I'm just saying is, if you see the believer's union with Christ as the central and predominant and unifying theme of the Bible, the Old Testament is going to become way more attractive to you, and it will make way more sense to you. Um, but sometimes it takes reading the Bible six or seven times all the way through before the big picture starts to help you interpret the small parts, and where the small parts lead you to a study that gives you answers that you hold on to that create a big picture, and you end up with every pass providing more and more and more clarity to the point where you start to see things uh, that you never have seen before. So one of the phrases that in this reading, I didn't have this experience during my last reading, but in Jeremiah, the phrase from the least to the greatest was used in terms of God's judgment affecting everyone, that there's no one who's going to escape this judgment, that the nation of Israel has gone astray so completely and so fully, and its leaders are so culpable in leading the people of God astray after false gods and idol worship and detestable practices of every kind, that even in God's judgment, the least and the greatest are equally going to suffer. But then in the in the good news section of Jeremiah, it says that um, no longer will anyone tell his brother, this is chapter 31, to know the Lord, for they'll all know me. And where's that phrase? And from the least to the greatest. That there's going to be no disparity in the human experience because intimate knowledge with God is going to be experienced by everyone. And this happens through faith in God's son, Jesus. It's simple enough for small children to understand and receive. And it is there even for the mighty and the powerful and the intellectual and requires humility and dependence from all of us. And this is what true intimate knowledge of God comes from. And so in every single book of the Bible, you're not just getting a progression of the storyline of God's covenant people, Israel. And if you read it that way, you're going to end up getting a skewed version of God. What you're going to recognize is that the prophets are pointing out the fact that the human condition is not a problem that we can fix by our wills. It's not a problem that can be fixed by our obedience. It's not a problem that can be fixed by our faithfulness. Um, Israel is a prototype of humanity, and while they are called to operate as a light to the nations, the rescuers are in need of rescuing. And so Christ becomes the light of the world. And everyone who has an encounter with him, and through union with him, whether Jew or Gentile, gets brought to new life. And so we get a new heart, Jeremiah says, a new spirit. Or, um, Jeremiah says a new spirit, Ezekiel says a new heart. Isaiah forecast the massive transformation in, in the interior of the human experience. And then ultimately in the final judgment, the consummation, the world around us is actually going to be changed. Not only are we set free from the power of sin when we trust in Christ and we go through the waters of baptism, do we experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Our life begins to look differently. Our knowledge of God and our experience with him begins to develop. We become transformed more and more and more into the likeness of Christ. That's happening, but that's going to happen to our planet. Jesus is going to come back. The curse is going to be broken. The enemy of of uh, God and man, the devil is going to be destroyed. There will be no more outside influences of evil. The the curse on the ground of the earth is going to be removed. Christ is, and every resurrected believer is going to inhabit the earth, and we're going to be experiencing ages upon ages of uh, perfect life in a redeemed world. And this is where all this is going. You know, we're not, it's not just our eighty years if we're lucky on this earth that constitutes our life, and it's not a disembodied spirit existence on a cloud with a harp in heaven or in some like never-ending worship service in some ethereal distant galaxy. Like we're we're meant to be living the type of life we're living now, and the Israelites could not experience that because of their hardness of heart. Now, there was always a remnant of those who believed God 
And so this remnant is what we're going to continue to see that God preserves and then fulfills his blessing upon. And so that is one of these themes. But I want to just encourage you, uh, don't avoid the Old Testament because you don't understand it. Uh, give yourself to it even more so that your understanding of it increases. And it's okay to have a tension. It's okay to feel conflicted about experiencing the judgment of God and the the forecast judgment of God. But even as you read that, um, don't zoom past it or scan past it without because you'll miss the places where even in the midst of God saying this judgment is sure to come, it is definitely going to happen. He's still calling for anyone who's of that remnant to re- respond and repent, and and He's so quick to relent. And so you got to hold all these pieces together. So part of the reason God's judgment against Israel and Judah are so severe is because they had the most revelation, the most blessings, all the promises. They're working from uh, actual awareness and knowledge. And then they're rejecting God. And then on the outside, they're pretending like they're not. They're holding all the exterior forms of their religion, but they're also, through syncretism, just bringing in all sorts of other uh, worship of other gods. And God says, you're you're essentially cheating on me. You're like, you want to live in my house and have all of my blessings and experience me as your husband, but then you want to just also go next door and sleep with the guy who's our neighbor, and you expect me to just be okay with that, and then you're upset when I'm upset? Like, no. And so Jeremiah is a big, no, you can't gaslight God type of book. And so as you recognize that, what you're going to see is, man, these people did not deserve the kindness and favor of God. And yet throughout the book, God continues to plant seeds of hope, ultimately to become fulfilled in the person of Jesus and that lead to the inclusion of everyone who would turn to him. And even then, even for those people who would respond to God's word and would not be hard-hearted, they could be a part of this remnant who would be preserved and cared for and covered even through that judgment. So the judgment came, the exile happened, and yet even in that exile, God was caring for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, um, Jeremiah, um, these different kings, these different named people where they were going through this judgment that was not going to be relented from because of the hardness of the hearts of the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel, but they still experienced God's faithful love, the, the love he said he would never take away from David. So this Sunday, we're going to get a little picture of that. I also want to point out to you, um, one of the things that's emerged to me in these last two readings is I used to have this perception that Jesus as a teacher was just super creative and had just said all these things that no one had ever heard before. And that's true. There were some things that Jesus said that had never been said. There are a few of them. But so much of the things that Jesus said in many, many, many of his parables are actually very closely tied to Old Testament prophetic passages. And so we're going to see that. Uh, this coming Sunday, as we have an examination of Isaiah 28, and then Jesus' uh, famous sermon on the soils, the parable of the soils, and then uh, a picture of Isaiah 55, and then um, some of the comments that Jesus makes in three of the Gospels about an invitation to come to him. And so Jesus was very, very, very saturated in the Old Testament. And a lot of the things that he said that you're very familiar with are actually him filling out what was already clearly communicated, you know, from him through the prophets hundreds of years before. So I hope, I hope that increases your expectation of the Old Testament um, and your appetite for the Old Testament. And if you're finding yourself hung up by the violence or the anger, or the despairing nature, or the distant, confusing, the names, all that stuff, that's okay. The more times you take a pass at it, the clearer it will get. 
And there are bright spots in every single book, even though there's pages and pages of difficult and dark. And so pull out a highlighter and make a highlight. And when you read it again, go, there's the, there's the bright spot. And I guarantee you, the more times you do this, um, the more God will reveal to you, the more your affection for the scriptures will grow, the more your uh, understanding of God's big picture is going to uh, uh, kind of crystallize in your own thinking. The more you understand the smaller parts, the more the big picture is going to come into focus. And the more the big picture comes into focus, the more of the small confusing things will become clear. And so don't give up and don't be despairing, please, I beg of you. And, um, and, and if nothing less, make sure that as you're reading the New Testament that you recognize how prolific the Old Testament quotes, references, and allusions are. And do yourself a favor when you're meditating on a New Testament text, look specifically for connections to the Old Testament and then be at least familiar with those. Um, you'll find that you'll end up being familiar with about 70% of the Old Testament uh, that's, that's alluded to or referred to or quoted directly uh, in the New Testament. So that's my, that's my little section one spiel. And um, I also wanted to kind of just forecast a little bit of this coming Sunday. So Lord willing and the creek don't rise, uh, we're going to be seeing a little bit of this happen in, um, in Isaiah. And we'll be finishing Jeremiah this week and continuing to move on. So thank you so much. Um, we are going to create a, a way in which you can let us know that you are completing the Bible in six months because I want to give you a shout out and um, show you some love if you started this journey with us and you finished and so um, be on the lookout for that. And if you're someone, if you're in the hundred plus days of reading and you're a little bit behind, I just want to like give you a little go get them, Coach Jesse. Um, you know, don't lose steam. Don't don't give up. You got this. Like block out some hours, catch yourself up, because um, we're gonna we're we're really heading towards the home stretch. And um, in June we're gonna finish. We just we're just now entering May, so we're just a few weeks away from finishing the Bible. And uh, so I want to I want to reward those of you who are doing that with us. We'll probably, we'll probably create some kind of QR code on a Sunday on a banner and you can scan it with your phone and you can let us know um, that you're going to finish or when you do finish. Uh, so thanks thanks for, for joining us. All right, let's go directly to some questions. Um, Rebecca has been a constant uh, sender of questions and I, I just love the, the uh, insights and the questions that she's been asking. Um, most recently... She says, uh, reading at this pace, I'm realizing how much is being written during the Babylonian captivity. Yeah, that's important. Um, is it true for many of the Old Testament books? I know Daniel also, when we get there, uh, were many of the books written or at least the account they cover mainly in those 70 years. So that 70 years is going to be a reference to a specific period of time that God spoke through Jeremiah um, for how long his people were going to be in captivity. And then she writes in Ezekiel, he is referred to by God as son of man. So this was a, this was a um, designation uh, that God gave to Ezekiel um, as like different from God, so distinct from God. So you have the son of man was a title. And then we're going to see that title also emerge in Daniel as a picture of a prophetic revelation of you have this ancient of days figure representing God, but then there's also this one like a son of man who is mysteriously the same and in the presence of the Ancient of Days. And so this is something that uh, the, the revelation of God as three in one starts to emerge in the Old Testament. So God's constantly revealing more and more and more of himself. And there's this enigmatic figure in the visions of Daniel, the Son of Man. And of course, this becomes the designation that Jesus uses for himself. It's somewhat enigmatic because there is a prophetic connection to the Son of Man as that one who is uh, co-equal with God and in the presence of God 
um, and God in human form, but also this is a title for a man who's separate and distinct from God. And so son of God is a title that's used to refer to like um, a, a regal elevation of power, um, kind of like the divine right of kings kind of came from this, if you're familiar with um, European history. But if you're the king, you're chosen by God and you are like God's God's choice and you sit as his son under his blessing. And so there's these titles, son of God, son of man. And um, Jesus uses them and he calls himself the son of man a lot. And so understanding how these uh, work together. And we're going to have another podcast where we're going to talk about this when we get to Ezekiel. Um, but yes, this is, this is a distinct title, son of man. And then also man of God is, uh, this is like once you've been chosen by God and you're being used by God, man of God is a title that's applied to Ezekiel as well. Either way, she writes, it is interesting how he is addressed by God. It is, and that's insightful. I'm glad that you noticed that. And I'm excited to get into that. I see you're reading ahead a little bit. So good on you. So let me get to this question about when was the Old Testament written? And there's a lot of disagreement about this, particularly in the realm of higher criticism. So if you did, don't have a seminary degree, if you didn't um, go to school, um, you know that many, many institutions of higher education consists of people um, of unusual proclivities and belief systems who are oftentimes adverse to the institutions they claim to be supportive of. And this is true in the secular and in the sacred. And so if you go to you know, major universities, you're going to be instructed by socialists and Marxists and people that hate our country and hate our government and hate our history. And that for the past 50 years, higher education has been seeking to indoctrinate people away from the truth and into radical ideologies that essentially destroy the institutions of our country. So that's exciting. And then unfortunately, the same is true in the theological studies. And so um, throughout the kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, there was um, a movement to kind of like gut the Bible of its meaning and to turn it into basically just literary studies and people with no faith are kind of responding to this uh, Darwinian evolutionary biological, biological humanism and relativism that wants to t basically attack the scriptures and, and, um, and criticize the scriptures to make them essentially meaningless beyond uh, understanding ancient people groups and their use of propaganda and societies. And so the, 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 um, the field of text criticism was born. And this is where a lot of fundamentalism, if, you, if you're old enough to have been raised in like a fundamentalist Baptist church, which is a lot of where this dispensational theology went home to roost, was in response to this. And so these are people who take the Bible seriously um, and aren't willing to let it be criticized. And so God said it, uh, that settles it, I believe it. Um, there's a lot of King James Bible only people come out of this kind of thinking, uh, young earth creationism. And so there's this impulse to, um, to receive God's word as um, divinely, not only divinely inspired, but true in, at every level. And to read it in any other way than linear and literal is, to, is anathema. And so maybe you came from a background like that, but that's why it's, it was a response to this text criticism. And in text criticism, their goal would be to read the Bible and to disbelieve its claims about itself. And because of the rationalism and the humanism, um, they don't believe in any miracles. And so anytime that there's a fulfilled prophecy, that would be a miracle. And so the only way to explain that would be to say, oh, well, that prophecy was written after those events came to be. And so it was a retrofit explanation of those events, not a prophetic uh, utterance about uh, events that had not yet taken place. And so the scriptures have significant detailed prophecy 
particularly let's take for instance um, this, the, the call of God's anointed one Cyrus who was going to be the one who was going to set the exiles free and, uh, and not only permit them but direct them and, and finance their return to Israel and the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the temple. Darius, um, the Persian and the Mede, like these are names that were spoken through the prophet Isaiah 150 years before they actually happened. And so if you're a text critic, you're going to go, oh, well, that's because that, that passage of Isaiah wasn't written by Isaiah and it wasn't written before Cyrus. It was written after Cyrus. And because that happened, now they wrote that into their history as a prophecy that was fulfilled. And so they date these books based on a series of presuppositions that are intellectual, rational, uh, and not expecting a divine intervention at all. These, these are basically just um, these crazy uh, Jews. They have their own kind of strange customs and ways, and they reinterpreted their story to, um, you know, self-insure their existence and promote themselves and protect themselves. And this is their propaganda and their justification for land. And so these are all these presuppositions. Of course, you have to read all kinds of textbooks with Greek and Hebrew and history and names you can't pronounce and all kinds of stuff that doesn't make any sense. And you got to get so deep into it that you can't see your hand in your face. Um, and if you don't buy it, then you won't have any interest in pushing through it unless you're called in the ministry or as a professor and you have to know this stuff so you can take it apart. But anyway, the reason I mention all this is because they constantly are, are reaching for a very late date of all of the Old Testament. In fact, they'll tell you that uh, all the Old Testament, including Job, was likely written after the 5th century BC. So what we would call the post-exilic period in the intertestamental period, they would be saying, listen, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the books of Moses, all those things were nothing but loosely held oral traditions from a people group uh, who, who had a war in Canaan and established some territories and had some skirmishes and were carried off. And, and in order to rouse their people out of exile in Babylon and Assyria, they came up with this fantastical story of their history that led them to believe that this land belonged to them, that they could return to it, and that God was going to have their back. And that's pretty much all the Old Testament is. And I just can't wait to tell you what they think about the New Testament. Of course, all that is baloney. It's based in uh, unbelief and uh, carries with it incredible amounts of presupposition um, that you know, super smart people are super happy to pat themselves on the back and have parties for one another and um, give each other awards and prizes um, for writing stuff that no one's ever thought of before, as long as it you know, debunks the truth that God's revealed. So um, you'll read things, especially like if you go to Wikipedia, if you're, that, all of these influencers are what contributors to Wikipedia are looking to. And so most of what you read is going to at least seek to undermine traditional belief in the scriptures and use um, these text critics as sources for um, why this is really just um, late written propaganda. You know, it's, it's funny though, with that argument of like the really late written version of the Old Testament, even if that is true, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus and Jesus came 400 years later, so it's all still prophetic. <laughs> it's kind of like self-defeating yeah, in a way. It, 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 it really is. Also like the thing about the scriptures to me, and we could debate, and if some if someone's listening and you're kind of like, um, you know, if you come from that background, you believe those things to be true, and you know, you don't hold to the kind of fundamentalist presuppositions of the scriptures, and don't read it the same way I do. Like, I'm happy to go toe to toe with you and talk about it um, in good in in uh, good humor, of course. Um, but 
the value of the scriptures and the experience you have of reading them, like the the actual way in which God speaks and the like when I open the scriptures and I read them for enjoyment, but I read them devotionally to know God, like I encounter God in the scriptures. And so like I am interested in when things were written and how the history of how they came to be and which form and translation history and you know, different people's perspective on when things are written and by whom and on what occasion. Those things all are of great interest to me. But the scriptures are valuable to me because God is in them and he speaks through them and I encounter him in them and I trust him. Like I really do. I really trust that God brought these scriptures uh, to me and to you. And so he inspired them. He uh, recorded them. He preserved them. They were faithfully um, copied and translated and people of generations of faithful people have worked very, very hard to, to work with God and his purposes to make sure that we have access to them. And they're alive. It's not, this is not like reading the Iliad or the Odyssey or, you know, um, any, any type of old documents, which have interest, you know, but they're not alive and God's not in them. And he is in these scriptures. And so um, some people, some people have like kind of, do- uh, I'd say, dogmatic fundamentalist beliefs about the, the the writing of these texts and when they came to be and at what dates, and very rigid about those things and things like young earth creationism and 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 in response to the attack on the scriptures, those are the those are the responses, and I get that, um, and so I I take a little bit more of a open like Bill just said, like I'm a little bit more open handed with I'll, I'll consider your arguments, but. Um, I'll also notice your presuppositions and I'll point out when I just disagree. So if you think that there's no miracles and therefore there's no fulfilled prophecy and therefore there can't be uh, Old Testament texts that describe future events, then I disagree with you. <laughs> so that's an underlying presupposition. Yeah. And it's also interesting because God says like uh, throughout the Old Testament, like I'll do it as a sign and a wonder. Yeah. Like he legitimately says he'll do miracles. Right. So that, so that you'll know that he's God. Like everybody else will also know that I'm God. Yep. And it's just like, if you're reading the old Testament, like God says those things about himself, which yep. is kind of interesting. Yep. He does. And that's the manner in which he's interacted with humankind through space time. I mean, in the, in the first century, this is what Jesus did. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. He explained the teachings of the old Testament and he confronted those who got him wrong, um, with authority. And then he also performed miracles that were signs to to justify the words that he spoke. And so here's Jesus doing that. And then, of course, in his own lifetime of ministry, he sends out his apostles and then disciples in the 12 and the 70. And then at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon all of the followers of Jesus. And they carry out this ministry throughout the known world of proclaiming the kingdom, uh, preaching Jesus and repentance in his name and fulfilling the same types of miracles. And there's lots of uh, Western rationalism that says miracles don't exist. And there's a lot of unbelief in our world that uh, I think, at least in the American context, keeps those miracles from happening. If they, if, if Jesus was limited in his ability to heal in Nazareth, then what would make us think that the unbelief of the people we're ministering to would keep us from experiencing those same signs and wonders here? And what did Jesus say again and again and again at at, at the happening, sometimes uh, willingly and sometimes unknowingly? Jesus, you know, had the woman uh, with the issue of blood touch him in a crowd and he experienced power going out of him. And what did he say to her? Your faith has healed you. And so Jesus is looking for faith and where there is faith, there's power. 
and where God is expanding his kingdom, he is happy and willing and eager to attend the preaching of the kingdom with signs and wonders. And so it, just because that's not happening to you or you have an experience, that does not mean that God is not still working that way. In fact, many reports throughout uh, the missional edges of the globe come back with great power and signs and wonders attesting the preaching of Jesus in all sorts of cultures. And I think something to also mention is like that God is a gentleman and he will work with you in, at your level. And so if something like uh, like tongues, we'll say, is offensive to you, God's not going to appear to you in tongues. Right. Like that has to minister to you yeah. in that way. So if miracles don't minister to you, God won't show you miracles. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I think um, God is relational at his, at his nature. I mean, we're created in his image. And so what we are is a is a smaller representation of who he is. He didn't start with nothing. He didn't create us out of thin air. We're, we're in his likeness. And so he wants to know and to be known. And that's always been part of the, the plan. I mean, a central part of the plan is God's eternal purpose is to dwell with a people whom he has redeemed for himself in a perfect place. And so he's, he's perfecting us, but he wants to know us to be known by us. And so I'd also just like challenge you a little bit. If you have God in the box of what God can and can't do or what God will and won't do, um, just get to know him, you know, understand that you don't know everything about God. You actually never will. But in the meantime, um, let the scriptures open your categories for who God is, what God's done, what God is like, and then welcome God, the Holy Spirit to work in your life and be open to him doing things in you that you never thought uh, he would do. Um, nothing he wants to do is bad. Everything he wants to do. I mean, it's not painless. God's going to, God's going to lead us. God's going to care for us, but he's bringing all of us through even death. And so if, if our life is meant to be cruciform in the sense that we follow Christ, we take up our cross, we put ourselves to death, we live to him and die to self, and therefore we're empowered by his spirit to love God and love others and live our lives that way, that's not going to be pain-free, uh, but it is going to be pain-proof. And so you will persevere and you will endure. And in that, in that um, journey, you're going to encounter God in new and powerful ways. And so if you, all of your... All of your uh, experience of God, your profound experience of God happened in the past. You may have derailed. Because God's got good things he wants to do right now. Powerful revelations right now. And experiences for you in the future. And so, um, you know, let's open up our minds a little bit. Open up our hands a little bit. That is one of the features you'll find at Bible Project. Um, those guys are very highly educated. Tim Mackey is just a pretty pretty brilliant student of the scriptures. Um, and there's, he will present both sides oftentimes in his videos of here's the kind of critical reading and here's the kind of fundamentalist re understanding. So of Isaiah, if you watch the Isaiah video, for instance, he'll talk about Isaiah and Deutero Isaiah. So chapters one to 39 and then 40 to 66, um, critical scholars would say, you know, Isaiah wrote chapters one to 39 and then he died. And then his followers ended up writing in the Isaiah tradition, the second half of what theologians call Deutero or second Isaiah. And, um, and so he presents that, that some people believe that he doesn't actually say whether he does or not. Um, and then he says other people would read Isaiah as a, as a whole. Maybe Isaiah wrote part of this in his early life and part of this in his later life. But there's some, there's some uh, hangups in there, the things that are said, uh, the phraseology of things that, that critical scholars would say, oh, this is clearly has to have been after Isaiah lived and died. And so um, this is where they get this idea. Um, if that's true, Jesus did not know that because <laughs> he, he quotes both sides of Isaiah uh, and calls it Isaiah and not uh, Deutero-Isaiah or in the tradition of Isaiah or the disciples of Isaiah. So um, that's kind of where I land. But anyway, 
That's a great question, insightful. Uh, that may have been deeper than the question you were asking, Rebecca, but yes, a lot of the prophets were written during the pre-exilic and then post-exilic period of time. And so that fifth century BC, there's a lot going on. Uh, and then we end up with the return of the exiles to Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple, the wall. Uh, and then the awaiting expectation in the intertestamental period, about 400 years, where a lot of stuff does happen. Uh, the Hasmonean dynasty and the Maccabees, and um, this is where Hanukkah comes from. And there's a lot of stuff happening in Jewish history, but there's no revelation. There's no prophetic revelation. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. We told you First um, and Second Chronicles was, was the last book in the original compiled version that's retelling the history and, and holding the people of God in expectation of a a returning Davidic king in God's faithfulness, his faithful love to, to David. But Malachi is the last prophet. And of course, he's prophesying that he's going to send one to prepare the way for him, who of course Jesus says is John the Baptist. And then he himself uh, is going to appear. And that's in the person of Jesus. And so the messianic expectation begins in the 400-year period of silence. The intertestamental period has no scripture, although there's lots of um, writings and literature that we should be familiar with. And then the New Testament uh, comes on the scene with John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And so that's kind of where this is going. But a lot of the content of the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets, uh, happen on that uh, timeline uh, between the post-judges, so during the kind of monarchy, and then the divided kingdoms, and then the exile and return. Uh, those prophets uh, are going to be kind of stuck on those timelines. And they're out of order, too. You're going to get to some of those prophets and go, when exactly was this? And they're not going to be in chronological order. Something that helped me was um, reading. Uh, I followed a chronological Bible reading mm -hmm. plan. You get one on like Blue Letter Bible. Yep. But like the, these people go back and kind of line everything up so that you're reading chronologically. So you might read a couple chapters here and you jump over to Isaiah and the corresponding prophecy. And then you go back to Kings and you read some more. And, and it really helps to understand what's going on chronologically because, you know, we're reading... Isaiah, and this is like, okay, cool, this is over the lifetime of Isaiah, or who knows, mm -hmm. really, yep. but it's, I think that's helpful, that might be helpful, bonus feature. Yeah, yeah, and like I've said over and over again, and we've talked about this in the podcast, our desire is not to read the Bible once, our desire is to read the Bible through at this, at this pace, so that we experience it in a particular way, and then as students of God's Word, to spend the rest of our lives constantly engaging with the Scriptures, and so some of that's going to be hard work. Some of it's going to just be soul satisfying. Some of it's going to become very familiar. And so we'll even be facing down, uh, you know, the familiarity obstacle, which is I've, I've read this so many times. I've heard this so many times. Its meaning is not piercing my heart, you know. And so getting a chronological Bible, mixing it up, changing translations, even like paraphrase translations like the message or the passion translation, they make you think about how these words are being um what the meaning behind these words are and maybe provoking your thinking. Doesn't mean you'll agree necessarily or that it'll speak to you, but it'll get you outside of that familiarity. And so I ho we hope that, that this challenge really begins your journey in God's word and doesn't make you feel like now that you've done it, you've checked that list. Now, I'm going to keep preaching sermons until I die or Jesus comes back, um, and I will never, ever, ever exhaust the rich uh, depths of God's word and the understanding that we have and the insights we have. And as God leads us through history, like the the scriptures are going to speak to us in different ways in different times and different components of them are going to be deeply meaningful for us in ways that we never experienced before in our own personal journeys and in our journey through history and culturally and contextually. And so like we, we want to just become saturated in God's word so that it's it's there. It's, it's truth is in our hearts and God's spirit can bring it to life 
and it can minister to us and we can know God deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And so uh, we're just getting started and um, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. And I hope that um, you continue to experience that same desire and, and impulse to know God better through this uh, reading journey. All right, one more question, and it's a it's a long one, um, and I'm going to read it and kind of comment through it. So um, our friend Alan, Al has uh, sent in his four paragraph uh, letter with a couple questions inter- interspersed, but another insightful reader, and I'm super grateful for you engaging with the podcast. But here's what Alan writes: uh, Once again, reading the Bible cover to cover has proven to be quite enlightening. I'm so glad to hear that. While reading the books of the prophets, I was taken by the similarity of the themes that run through almost all the prophetic scriptures. The accusations of Israel, Judah's rebellious nature, how seemingly easily they worshipped idols and false gods, the judgment punishments issued by God, and the message of hope regarding the coming messianic king and unified glorious kingdom of God that awaited those who repented and returned to the Lord. That is a fantastic summation of the prophets obviously not weighted in terms of word count to each of these sections, but this is the message of the prophets. You nailed it, Alan, so thank you. Uh, He writes, understanding that most of these books covered many years, decades, from one prophet to another, as well as within a given book, it's fascinating that the people of the times would ignore the warnings of the prophets time and time again. And this is true, and this is part of that hardness of heart and disbelief um, that we see as a theme. And then he just asks, why? And was it because of the false prophets of the time? Yes. In Jeremiah, you're definitely going to see that. Um, There are false prophets. Uh, And even God saying he's going to test his people by allowing or even sending false prophets to say the opposite of what God had previously said. And so, yes, there's always a massive influence from within and a massive influence from without. He says, why were they so easily swayed to idols and false gods? How was one of the weakest prophets, Jonah, believed by the Ninevites with such a half-hearted warning? In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. So this is Jonah 3, 4. Alan obviously reading ahead. Uh, The other prophets were so detailed and compelling in their accusations and warnings, yet they were not taken seriously. Um, So part of the answer to that is fear. So, you know, we live, again, in this rationalistic, humanistic environment. We fear different things, but human nature has always been one to fear and to turn to anything that would absolve us of whatever it is that we fear. And so one of the ways that fear operated for ancient Israel was that they had foreign countries on every side, and they were under threat of attack constantly. And one of the ways that they would mitigate that would be through alliances. And the only way to have alliances would be to adopt the spiritual practices of that same nation. And so there were intermarriages, and then there was the bringing in of false gods, and so that would start subtly, and it would be something where you had, you know, Egyptian-influenced people who are there living among you and, and worshiping their gods, and you're not. And then that becomes a little bit more mainstream, and people become acceptable, and then they start going to the, the feasts and the parties. And you don't believe it, but you're doing it. You know, you're taking your kids on your trick-or-treating, and uh, you don't believe in, in uh, ghosts and goblins, but you're eating the candy and going to the parties. And But before long, because our hearts are in search of meaning, purpose, value, security, um, and because we're religious by nature, our hearts move away from faithfulness to the living God and to respond to those things that motivate us by fear. And God's always motivating us by love. You'll notice this even in the tone of the Old Testament. God's warnings are not coming to his people as going, if I'm going to destroy you, if you don't, you know, be afraid of me and not them. I mean, he does say things like that, but he's showing like, it is my faithful love 
towards you that's actually causing me to be angry. And anybody that says that God is not angry has not read the Bible because you can't love somebody and not feel anger when they reject you or when they disbelieve you or when they uh, rebel against you. Like anger is evidence that love is genuine. And so like the love of God is always what has motivated the faithfulness to God. Um, but fear is more powerful. Greed is more powerful. To an unregenerate heart, you are susceptible to fear and greed. Bill and I were actually having a pre-podcast conversation about free market uh, economies and capitalism and the role of greed and fear, and and it's still just as powerful today. We're less, uh, we're we're more rationalistic. We're less superstitious as a people than our biblical counterparts, but we're just as given to motivated by fear. And we, I think, we saw that in COVID. I mean, we look at COVID, here's this unknown disease caused by a virus of unknown origins at the time. And I think uh, our reactions, our fearful reactions, did far more damage than the actual disease itself. And I think governments took advantage of the fear of people and took had a power grab, the likes of which we've never seen in a generation or two. And so like, uh, fear is powerful. And when we're afraid, we hand over our freedom to other powers who we hope will save us and for us, that's uh, expert class and, and governmental officials. Um, but for our ancient uh, Near Eastern counterparts, that was false gods. And so I think uh, humans, apart from a life-giving relationship with Jesus, are just as susceptible to the motivations of fear and greed and promises of fertility and blessing and prosperity. And it's just part of the brokenness of the human condition. Uh, Alan continues, my next question may sound rather odd, but here it goes. Did the prophets really word for word, in quotes, what God had conveyed to them, or did they embellish sometimes? My inclination is to believe that they did relay what God told them word for word as the message from God to each prophet is very close to identical. In any event, I'm curious as to your take on this question. Okay, that's a good question. It's a great question. Um, and so every genre of scripture is different, and even the prophets write different. I think one of the biggest um, evidences of the, the truthfulness of scripture is that God's message comes across, but he speaks through different authors who have distinct types of communicating. And God also interacts with these authors differently. So like we mentioned already in Jeremiah, uh, God, used, um, God used Jeremiah in, through object lesson to help him get a point, and then he communicated the meaning behind that point. Um, and so that, this would have been um, a combination of a retelling of an experience, the carrying out of that experience, the understanding of the meaning of that experience, and then his proclamation. You'll also notice that the Old Testament prophets, they run in chunks. And so you can kind of take these apart um, in narrative. Uh, theologians call this pericope. This is where you have like, this is the piece. Like this, this is a unit from here to here. And there's a transition at this verse and ends at this verse. And this is the piece you want to hover in on. And the prophets are written the same way. So these aren't like you know, you don't have 52 chapters that, that, that Jeremiah sat in a room and like downloaded ecstatically and wrote down with a pen. This is over the course of his life and his ministry. Some of these um, prophecies were given to the northern kingdom of Israel. Some were given to the southern kingdom of Judah. Some were given to specific individuals, some to a remnant, some to those in Egypt. So there's all these different people that God sent Jeremiah to. And the messages are somewhat short when you take them all apart and you go, okay, this is a section, this is a section. It's not just chapter and verse and the whole scroll. Um, all at once. This is the ministry of a man over a long period of his life uh, who experienced great suffering and walked with God through all sorts of turmoil. And so uh, I believe, in a sense, um, each biblical contributor experienced the divine revelation of God in a variety of different ways. They were engaged in their own intellect and experience, and they used their own vernacular. And so there's a there's an imprint, but this is 
uh, inspired by, as, as uh, Paul tells us in Timothy, um, breathed out by God. So it's of divine origin, um, but it comes through people with um, you know, real language and real personality and really real storytelling and real poetic insight. A lot of, a lot of the Old Testament is written in poetic form and not just prose or narrative. And um, these are things that are make it easier for us to remember. We get songs, we get proverbs, we get one-liners, two-liners, ten-liners. Um, we get acrostic with alphabets connected to and things that are easy to memorize. We're just talking about this recently with somebody about Matthew's genealogy. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but Matthew breaks down his genealogy of Jesus into three sections of 14. Uh, those, that's for memory's sake. And then if you follow those 14, um, the, the numerology of the number 14 uh, uses the the Greek letters for disciple, like these are like these are pneumatic devices that are meant mnemonic mnemonic devices. There's no um, air tools involved. Mnemonic devices um, that help us to remember. So there's all kinds of things that are going on in your Bible that are very practical, but um, you don't want to get this this picture that the the scripture writers were like getting some kind of like downloading from God that's word for word. Yeah, I would, I would say um, if you or not. Are we in Jeremiah? We're not in Jeremiah 36 yet, but in Jeremiah 36, God says, all right, write down everything that I told you. And then, you know, then that gets all burned by the king and he's like, write it again. And you're like thinking about, okay, cool. What actually just happened? Like that was the book of Jeremiah torched and then write it again. And so you're thinking like word for, is everything word for it? I don't know. I think God's able to do that. Sure. But like, that's why like authorial intent is important like what's the author trying to say here yeah what's you know the bigger author god what is he trying to say here absolutely so two two things about that i think that's a really helpful illustration from jeremiah 36 because essentially edition one was destroyed and what we have is edition one describing or edition two describing the writing and destruction of edition one right? right and so but we're getting the same person writing the same material so in like in like a scholarly sense were those two editions word for word? We'll never be able to compare them because one's gone forever. But like the author providing them again at the behest of God is enough. <laughs> and so the scripture as we have it, uh, so theologians use the term plenary inspiration. Inspiration not just in the, the oomph of it or the meaning of it, but in the words of it. And so this is why it's so important that we, we for copyists, um, scribes, that, that it was copied word for word and there wasn't interpolation or interpretation or expansion of an idea. That was like, that would not be something that would be accepted because you want the actual words and to preserve those actual words. And you know, like something that just kind of came to my mind is like, why would God ask Jeremiah to do that if he wouldn't emp- empower him with the grace to yeah. write something inspired by God? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. something to think about. Absolutely. And like you said, God's able. I don't know if you've ever written poetry. I've written a lot of poetry. I haven't shared a lot of it with the world. But like when you're writing poetry, you're working hard for not only um, the words to convey meaning, but also to create rhythm and also to provoke thought and feeling. And so sometimes you're like really, um, you're really uh, working hard at even like prepositions. Like if I put this preposition here, my syllables get interrupted. And so now I'm gonna rewrite this whole line with the same meaning, but so that it lands on this word and sounds like this rhythm. And so like a lot of detail goes into writing poetry. Um, and the same can be said for uh, write the, script, the writing of the scriptures. Some of them are letters, just letters written from one heart to another. You know, Paul's, read, Paul's letter to Philemon comes to mind or um, second and third John, you read those and there's just some details. It doesn't seem like there was like 
a vast amount of like thought given in every word, but like this is the word as it was written and it contains a message from God and therefore it's precious to us and so we receive it. And so um, that's why you have to take into consideration in your hermeneutical interpretive method, uh, genre and authorship and language and all those kinds of things. But um, no, we receive the scriptures as written, plenarily inspired, word for word, as meant to be communicated to us by God, but not downloaded from God uh, word for word as such. Good question. All right, last question before we wrap up. Um, Alan says, finally, although I have been hypercritical and judgmental of the people in the pre-Christ era, and let me just stop there to say thank you for acknowledging that. All of us feel that way, Alan, because it's a lot easier to look at someone else's failures and think I wouldn't do that than it is to contextualize our experience to their experience and recognize that we're basically in the same plight. And so thanks for having the humility to recognize that. Um, all of us have gone through that at some level. Uh, and so recognizing that is the first step to us being able to actually connect with the experience that they're having and then apply that to our own experience as well. But he says, I see the same types of behaviors occurring today. Very insightful also. People idolize social media. Of course, social media being an expression or extension of their projected self. Uh, materialism. So this is hedonism and what makes me happy is having things and what makes me feel secure is ownership. Uh, entertainers. So this is obviously where we objectify other humans so that we can feel better about ourselves and classify people in terms of value. Evil. Evil stuff. We all do it. We still have the abhorrent practice of child sacrifice. Here he's referring to abortion, I'm sure. Human trafficking um, in the sex trade and pornography industry. Satan worship and almost jaw-dropping deterioration of the family unit, which in my opinion has been quite um, purposeful by this kind of neo-Marxist push in our progressive left in the United States. Um, he said, I saw a statistic that showed the percentage of people that identified as Christians by generation, baby boomers being 70 plus, or plus percent down to Gen Z being less than 30. Clearly our leaders have seemingly been successful in crushing religion among the young. So where is the question? Uh, so where is the question in this diatribe run on paragraph? He says, uh, why are we as a society still so weak and easily tempted by demonic persuasion? Have we learned nothing? So a couple, couple answers to that question. Um, I think a lot of people would resound with that question. Um, here's, my, here's my answer. This is just me off the cuff, Pastor Jesse speaking. Um, number one, the scriptures have been, have been from the very beginning very specific about the role of parenting and intergenerational faith. And the American gospel has been so individualized and has been packaged for self-centeredness in a way that I feel and fear that multiple generations of quote-unquote Christian or Christian value people have not cared for their children in training them so that they have an actual faith that comes from experience and instead, uh, quote unquote, Christian people, and I say quote unquote because I don't know the veracity of the faith of people who have actually lived this way, have expected the church to indoctrinate their children and then have been aghast when their children don't believe the same things that they have believed. And so number one, I think, is a major parenting fail. And second, and that, I think that comes from a very self-centered, um, and as a baby boomer, Alan, you probably have experienced this. I mean, these are the generational transitions that have taken place. Um, the baby boomers are sometimes called the me generation. I'm not saying that you are self-centered or selfish, but as a generation, there was a major focus on that generation and not their children. So a lot of people raised by baby boomers were just ignored 
categorically ignored. This is not going to position you for a faith relationship with the God who your parents claim to serve. So that's part of it, parenting. I think the second part of it is just straight hypocrisy. And so there's just been a generation of, of people who have preached one thing and lived an entire other way. And so um, this younger generation, especially, we were talking about this last night at our men's meeting, um, this younger generation is a lie detector generation. They can sniff out insincerity and hypocrisy uh, in 10 seconds. And so I do believe that Gen Z is deeply in search of truth, meaning, hope, and purpose. And I think that there's great reason for us to have an expectation of a great harvest of souls among Gen Z, but they're not going to be looking for it in the form that the baby boomer generation expounds uh, Christian religion, which is typically kind of Christian nationalism, and I would say disengaged Christian nationalism. So God loves America and Israel. Go to church on Sundays when you can. Uh, be a good person, and these are the things that matter. And it's real, not Jesus-focused, and very generalized. And Gen Z just has no interest in that. And so I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, we also do have not only uh, an influential world of uh, political and social cultural leaders who are actually more influential in our young people than uh, the people who should be civic leaders, uh, religious leaders, and parents. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of Gen Zers were raised by the television. And so they have underlying presuppositions. And so on the one hand, they are truth sniffers. And so they are turning down network news in vast numbers and the ratings are showing that. But they also, a lot of them don't recognize that they're carrying around presuppositions that were implanted in them by those same influences. And so there's gonna be a great inner conflict that's gonna happen as the gospel in a, in a way that connects with Gen Z reaches them in their own hearts to go, not only was I duped by people that I don't trust, I actually believe a whole bunch of stuff that's not true, and so I got to deal with the inside. Now, here's the good news. Um, the good news for, about Jesus when preached is miraculous to bring lost children home and to bring dead things to life. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel of Jesus. It is mystical. It is spiritual. It is um, powerful. And so it doesn't matter what our obstacles are. It doesn't matter who our enemy is. When we engage in reality with who God has called us to be and to do what God has called us to do, he is going to bring about those results. And so I am very hopeful for this generation being probably the most ripe for the next type of awakening that history so desperately needs. And so I think we're like right there on the cusp of that. And so we don't have an enemy uh, that can hold us back. You know, people use this argument with me sometimes, and I think it's laughable when people talk about Christians uh, are going to be outpopulated by um, uh, Muslims because Muslims are having seven, eight, nine children, and Christians are now having 1.9 children. And so it's only a matter of two generations before uh, Christians are the minority and Muslims are the majority and Sharia law and all this stuff. And I'm, I, 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 the whole time I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, um, Christians aren't born, they're born again. God can make Christians out of nine out of nine Muslim children. And this is not how this works, you know? And so here's what we're called to. No matter what generation we're born into, no matter what errors we've fallen into, what other presuppositions are in our own hearts, we lean into our relationship with the Lord. We make Jesus the center of everything. It's not about us. And then we live lives, compelling lives of faith, loving people where they're at in their journey. And I think this is the type of of uh, religion that Gen Z is going to find very attractive. It's it's not flashy. It's not about um, it's not about personality. It's not about show business. It's about genuine people being open, being vulnerable, being honest, and being sincerely dedicated to knowing God.
being known by him and creating a community of people where everybody is welcome. And so like, that's what we're trying to build. Like at Christ Church, we are, we are really trying to be that type of environment. We're trying to just be real. It's a little raw. It's not necessarily fancy or the best polished version of what's out there. We're not trying to compete with other churches or other influences or increase our followership. We're just trying to know and follow Jesus and to do that together and to do that in a way that we're accepting of one another, supportive of one another, and moving towards the center where Jesus is being transformed in our lives. This is happening through our time in his word and through our community and conversations and through prayer uh, and, and through service to other people, whether that's in through our ministry partners or even just in our neighborhoods or places of work. However, it's happening, but it's really happening. And so I just want to encourage you, Alan, these are great questions, observations, um, but we don't, have, uh, we don't have an adversary that we have not already been victorious over and in sincerity and in patience and in humility, which you're already, you're already displaying even in the words that you sent in. Uh, we are going to see God do great things. And so he's got a, a role for you to play in that, a role for us to play in that, and uh, we just want to be faithful. So I think as we sit here and love God, learn, uh, lean in, and just uh, love one another through this transformative process, God's going to do his work on the inside of us and on the outside of us. It's his world, and he's going to take it back in his great timing. So. So thanks for um, engaging with us. Continue to send your questions. You should have a bunch of questions about Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel as we roll through the major prophets in our reading. And again, uh, we look forward to hearing from you if you're on track uh, or close to on track with your Bible reading. If you're planning to finish with us, uh, we'd love to know that that you're doing that. So um, so shoot us an email, jesse at joinwithjesus, and um, we look forward to, to hearing from you. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Look forward to coming to you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.